Good morning, beloved. As always, it is a privilege to open the Word of God with you. Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We, in our exposition of the Gospel of Matthew, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount. We are seeing Christ, he's applying principles of righteousness of his kingdom. He's calling upon his kingdom people to true godliness. And of course, he's kind of raising that awareness of those caught up in this uh, really kind of sticky web of self-righteousness, kind of a, uh, a doom of self-righteousness, and really just how extensive uh, the command of the law is, and that is what he's trying to show Uh, his hearers, and certainly us as well. And so in this process, we've seen him address a few of these topics already. We've seen him speak about murder and the contrast there. Uh, We then saw him give really a couple of contrasts on his teaching on immorality and the whole Pharisees' idea of what their teaching of immorality was as he addressed not just uh, adultery, but he also then incorporated uh, fornication into that. In verses 31 and 32, We see him contrasting teaching on marriage versus what the Pharisees taught. Uh, We ended up actually getting out of Matthew at that time, and I think we spent six weeks talking about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And then last week we had the privilege of seeing him in verses 33 through 37 uh, deal with the issue of the tongue. And you've got all of these things uh, pulled up together. Actually, that was before the week before. So he's setting forth those contrasts. And we come now to really what the contrast is in dealing with uh, how our attitude should be revealed when it comes to our enemies. And so when we think about the Pharisees and what they were teaching and and the people who were kind of following that teaching, he is trying to extract the distinction between what the Word of God truly says, why it actually becomes a heart matter, not just an external thing, and the reason is, is because they were wrong. If we were to say, why were they wrong? Well, they were wrong because they looked to themselves for a righteousness. And then in looking to themselves for a righteousness, they began to set up external regulations. And in setting up those external regulations, what they did was they counted themselves worthy of that external uh, righteousness because they were meeting the standard by which they developed, you see. And I want you to notice that he really does three things, primarily three things in these words here uh, that that lead up to the end of Matthew 5 and basically points out not just the wrong teaching of the Pharisees, but secondly, he gives you kind of that right understanding of what the Word of God truly says, and then he applies that law. And by and large, he applies that law to human relationships, but he does that in the context of what the new covenant fulfillment is. And those are all things that we've already talked about. This morning our text is verses 43 through 48. So follow along in your Bibles, Matthew 5, beginning in verse 43. Our Lord says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, For he causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? 
Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you in this text, I I ask you, Lord, help us, please. Help me. These are convicting words to my soul, to my heart. They pierce me, Father. They should pierce each and every one of us. There's a growing disdain that we would have, Lord, for the flesh. A growing disdain, Lord, of the things that our, our flesh bring about. We should hate them. We should hate them more. And we should love you more. And I pray, Father, that your word would do the work in each and every one of us that is so necessary this day, that you would be honored and glorified. Please, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. This is the sixth of the antitheses, or the contrast that he makes, and he's setting forth forth again that righteousness for his kingdom, uh, of his kingdom, He's setting forth a kind of life that basically his disciples are to uh, reflect. He's putting that standard of kingdom life out there. Standards, by the way, and, and let's be very clear, these are standards by which we cannot achieve on our own efforts. We need the grace of God in our life. We not only need the grace of God in our initial sanctification of being called just before him who takes us and he then declares us righteous because of the work of the Spirit of God, but we need that continuing grace in sanctification. And these words continue to just cripple me in my flesh. Things in our lives, our hearts, our behavior that really can be produced by the grace of God which is the only thing that's going to cause us to live a life of God. Things which not only result in the work that the Spirit of God does in us, but think of it in another way, in that union that we have with Christ, this union with Christ, we see how he is doing some of these things as he is guiding us and working our uh, our conformity to his Son out as we step closer and closer to eternity. Today, we are, you are and I am, we are one day closer to being in the, in the presence of God than we ever were. And that's a day that I'm looking forward to. Whenever that is. By whatever means he chooses to end my day. He's showing us how his people are to live when the kingdom of heaven is implanted in the hearts of his people. Those who have trusted, those who have rested in him alone, by his work alone. And what he does is he sets forth a standard that cannot be matched in any way, shape, or form by the flesh or by the word for that matter, or the world rather for that matter. So uh, he, he comes to this last contrast, he uses this contrast, this we, as we've been calling that an antithesis because it's an antithesis of what the thesis of the Pharisees were teaching. That's where we get that word. We've said all along he's been contrasting this with their false teaching about righteousness, all of which they would purport was biblical teaching, and all of which purports basically to be based on the word of God in the Old Testament. But in fact, what has taken place is they have completely misunderstood it. 
I want to begin with this first point, and that is that fact that when it comes to the words of this text, we must never, ever illegitimately limit the extent of neighborly love. We must never illegitimately limit the extent of love for our neighbor. I am guilty of that. The Lord has already started that uh, in the previous verses. He, he kind of brought that into light just before this in the fifth antithesis in verses 33 through 42, which we looked at last time. He set forth his teaching, what it means to love your neighbor. Today, though, he kind of expands on that. He's making a bolder statement. He's setting forth a command here to love our enemies. And I just want to point out a few things in particular. The first that we find in verse 43, if you glance at that, it's where he gives us what the Pharisees are teaching about this subject, and he's contrasting that. And in that process, he's teaching you and I what we have to do is not in any way, shape, or form limit the extent of our love for our neighbor in some kind of illegitimate way. So we we, we must not come up with some kind of rationalization or some kind of uh, way in which we justify our restriction of our love for somebody else. And that's what causes me to really be crushed under the weight of these words. I've seen myself do that. I, I, I hate that. I hate that about my flesh. The Pharisees were doing it. I don't want to be a Pharisee. They took a good word from God in the Old Testament of you shall love your neighbor. And what they did was they actually appended it and they said, but hate your enemy. We see that the law of neighborly love, which we read, you could we've talked about this, but you could go back and read that in Leviticus 19. This is a practical love. This is a, a literally a practicality in love. It manifests this way in various ways. It's not just a sentiment toward your neighbor. It's not just an emotional feeling for your neighbor. It's a practical helping of your neighbor. It's not slandering your neighbor's name. It's looking out for your neighbor's best interest, whether it's in his estates or in his persons or in his vocation or in his good name and reputation. And so in all of these things, and really in a practical way, what we're saying is, yeah, we, we must love our neighbor, but you have to understand, first of all, really who your neighbor is. Maybe that question didn't dawn on you. We should ask questions of the text. One of the questions is, who is he speaking of? Nowhere, nowhere in his, uh, in the word of God, in, in, in anywhere, do passages command us to hate our enemies. It's not found. You won't find that. But of course, the Pharisees, they were very, be very quick to say, yeah, love your neighbor. You have to love your neighbor. It says in the Word of God to love your neighbor. And yet, your neighbor is the one who has the right to claim of your love. Your neighbor might be a relative, it might be your physical neighbor, it might be a fellow citizen, it might be somebody within the context of the church, it might be some other aspect in terms of a co-worker or something like that. We have room up front if you guys want to come in, so... Don't worry about it. You're not disturbing anybody. But understand, there are some who, they would say, 
does not really deserve our love. They don't deserve the kind of treatment that our love would give. And by the way, that's what they were teaching. Go over to Luke chapter 10. Understand something, the Pharisees misunderstood and twisted what it meant to be a neighbor. Luke 10, very, very uh, familiar passage. They misinterpreted and misrepresented the law of God. And the reason why is they had a worldly understanding of what really a neighbor or who a neighbor is. And they had a restricted definition of that. And in Luke 10, this is probably a great way for us to see what our Lord says in terms of the definition, because this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jump down in verse 36. We won't read it all, but look at what he says, verse 36, verse 37. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell in into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him, then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. He defines for them biblically doesn't he? He defines here biblically, not just here in Luke 10, but back in Matthew. What did the Pharisees define the neighbor as? Pharisees defined a neighbor as a person who had a claim on your love, a person who deserved to be treated lovingly by you, and so what they did is they redefined a neighbor. And I'm going to read a passage from Leviticus, just a verse, you don't have to turn there, but understand, we're, we're told not only to love our neighbor and not only to consider those who are fellow citizens of ours. Here's what Leviticus 19 says in verse 34. Listen to its words. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Goes on to say, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So he's, he's, it's not just those who have a claim on your love. You say, we, we are to love the stranger. We're, we're to love the resident alien. The outsider who is sojourning in the land. Uh, love the person just like our fellow citizens that demand a neighborly love. And that was a universal demand. Now, I'm not speaking about anything when it comes to allowing open borders or anything like that. I'm not. Re- that's not what this refers to. I'll go on to say that without a border, we have no country. But that's a different sermon for a different time. I just don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying here. And the Pharisees basically misunderstood the Old Testament call for separation. Our Lord in his law in the Old Testament, he calls Israel to be separated from the nations. And in separating them from the nations, he's saying, don't act like them. Don't think like that. Don't make alliances with them in these ways. And so the Pharisees basically said, well, that's a justification that we are able to hate everybody else. Let's just hate the other nations. And by the way, didn't God tell us to go into the land of Canaan and wipe out the Canaanites? I mean, didn't he tell us to do that? Well, yeah, he did. Does that mean we can hate them as well? No. That's how they perverted the word of God. Dear ones, understand something. God does not give his people the right to make those decisions on their own. You do not have that liberty. Think of it this way. When it comes to that particular issue with the Canaanites, 
the re, the, and the only reason that Israel was sent into the land of Canaan was basically to spare no one. Why? Because that's what we read about even in Genesis 15. God spared them for 400 years in, in one particular, um, asset, aspect of that. He allowed that to go 400 years for the specific purpose of him giving them the ability to repent. That was his common grace to them. And so when the kindness of God was thwarted, as it was in that case, and of course we could think of many other examples, when the kindness of God was thwarted and she did not repent, God sent his people in and sent him, sent his people in as a scourge to the land of Canaan to do something, to punish wickedness. And it was a wickedness of an exponential nature. It, even in comparison to other pagan nations around him, Canaan was just a horrible, horrible place. So that was designed by our Lord to punish wickedness. And by the way, that was for, to, to really kind of foreshadow his judgment to come, a judgment ultimately in which he would bring his condemnation against all those who don't trust and rest in him. You have to understand, I would be completely remiss if I said to you that if you are found outside of Christ, you are facing an eternal damnation unlike anything that you can imagine. Not popular. Not what people want to hear. People hate the truth. They hate that truth in particular, that I'm a sinner. No, no, no. I'm not like, I'm not like Hitler or Stalin or anything like that. No, no, no. You, you are evil. You're born in sin. The little ones here, as Fody likes to call them, vipers and diapers. Right? Vipers and diapers. So, we need to be aware of this pharisaical attitude, this pharisaical temptation, somehow to try to find approval from the Word of God for our own lovelessness. I can't do that. I beg you not to do that. Just too often we try to justify ourselves in our lovelessness, and we do that by trying to appeal to the Word. And our Lord is saying, look, they misunderstood the command because they limited the extent of what I'm requiring when I say love your neighbor as yourself. So don't don't illegitimately try to dampen the extent of that love as we're commanded to. Here's the second point I want to make this morning. We have to absolutely willingly embrace our obligation to love not just our neighbors, but our enemies. And this this is such a practical problem for us, dear ones. Such a practical problem. So easy for us to love those who love us. So easy to have people be together with people, even outside the context of the meeting on Sunday or Wednesday, to just have people uh, around who we like and love. Those we have delight in, those in whom we we draw delight from, because in that, what that's doing is it's feeding my pride, 
Look at how these people love me. It's hard. It's, it's hard to love those who have abused you. It's hard to love those who do not love you. It's hard to love those who have your best interest not in mind. It's hard to love those who want to undercut you at every point. That's hard. But understand, that's exactly what our Lord is calling us to. And so, do you see now how practical this is, dear ones? So easy. So, so easy to love those who are within even our own circle, our sphere of influences, related to our family or part of our friendships or friendships that maybe we've already built. But to love the outsider, hmm. to love the outsider, what's more, to love the one who is really not on good terms with us is a difficult thing. And I would have to say, if we were honest with ourselves, you would recognize that struggle as well. John Lafayette Garado, he was actually the great Southern Presbyterian. He was a prisoner of war in the Civil War. He comes back to South Carolina to take up his ministry. And after the war, he preaches a passionate sermon on this passage, this exact passage on loving your neighbor. His youngest son, actually, who is listening to the sermon later, he asks his father, he says, all the way home, he continues to ask him annoying questions. Of course, that doesn't happen to any parent here. Sitting around the dinner table, he kept asking specifics about the sermon that would apply to his own experience. He says, Dad, does this mean I have to love the bully who beats me up at school? Yes, son. (laughs) Dad, does this mean we have to love people who take advantage of our family? Yes, son. Dad, does this mean that we have to love the Yankees? Be quiet, son, and eat your dinner. (laughs) It's hard for him. (laughs) It's hard for us. (laughs) It's hard for me. It's hard for all of us who love God to love in the way that God loves us. And our Lord is, is addressing that issue, and again... Kind of picking that up here. Just look at verse 44. How we are must be willing to kind of embrace our obligation to love our enemies. But I say to you, again, here's the contrast. You have heard it said, this is what was taught to you. This is what the perversion of the teaching of the law has been. But I say to you, in antithesis to that, here's the contrast. Please don't miss it. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And what is our natural tendency? It's not to wish those good who do that. It's not those who want to wish us harm to do that. Our natural tendency, my flesh is cold in love for those who want to do harm to me. It's cold. And it's my natural tendency to hate those who hate me. That's my natural tendency. And I ask God to do a work in that. And our Lord here, he's, he kind of puts a check on that tendency. He, he makes that comment about loving your enemies, but he says, pray for those who persecute you. And I think when we see our enemies, one of the things that stands out is we often treat them as if they are even less than human. 
we want to be treated as if we are more than human, and because we want to, want to be treated like we are more than human, we treat others as less than human so that we then can stroke our ego, our flesh, which should be dead, should be put to death, mortified. Go over to Luke 6. I want you to know, our Lord does not just leave this up in the air. There's some very practical things on what he teaches when he says love. Luke 6 is really kind of a summation of the Sermon on the Mount. It's Luke's uh, summation of the Sermon on the Mount, what we're seeing in Matthew 5. It's a lot shorter than Matthew's summary. But I want you to note that in some places, actually, Luke gives us some additional insight, some additional understanding In Luke 6, pick up in verse 27. Luke records, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Watch this in verse 28. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. I want you to notice three things that our Lord sets forth on how we treat our enemies. He says, we need to speak well of them. He then says we're to bless our enemies when they criticize us, when they revile us, when they slander us. We are to, in essence, meet that assault, that criticism, that reviling, and that slandering with friendly words, courteous words. Not to return reviling for reviling. Speak well. Speak uprightly would be a way to say it. And I want you to notice also we're told that we have to do well to our enemies. So we we are to love them in a practical sense, right? Not just our neighbors, our enemies. Love in a practical way. Be ready to give them real kindness. And be thankful for the opportunity to show them kindness. Many of you have heard the name Thomas Cranmer, great Archbishop of Canterbury, He was kind of a a standout guy in the English Reformation, which followed shortly after the the German Reformation. And he was under King Henry VIII, and and, and that English Reformation kind of started there, but it carried on well past Henry VIII. But it was said that if you wanted to become his friend, this is Thomas Cranmer, if you wanted to become his friend, do him ill, because he was always anxious to return kindness and friendship for evil actions done toward him. That condemns me. He always showed love towards those who troubled him, it said. What a pattern. What a pattern. Be ready to do good. Be ready to do well toward our enemies. And I want you to notice that our Lord says that we're to pray for our enemies. When you pray for your enemies, experientially speaking, when you begin to pray for those who are who hate you, who undercut you, who undermine you, who want to do evil towards you, when you pray for them, it becomes really hard for you to hate them. Right? Very difficult to get down on your knees and offer up real prayer for those who you do not have a love that's cultivated, uh, not even an acquaintance. 
What do you do? You ask God to bless them. Maybe ask God to save them. Maybe even ask God that there would be peace with them. All those things are things we should do. Very practical. One commentator said about a pastor and his family that whenever he had two men in the congregation who were at odds, he had to invite them to his study, ask them to join him on his knees in their prayers, and he said that often, and I love this quote, men who got down on their knees as enemies got up as friends. It's really hard to pray side by side a friend and an enemy without learning to love. You want to learn to love? That's one way. But we're to speak well of them too. Do well. Pray for them. And Christ is exhorting us to a practical kindness, a practical kindness toward those who have no claim on our affection. And that's where the Pharisees went wrong. It's so easy to love those who do have claims of our affection, those who love us, those who maybe delight in us, but our Lord in essence is telling us and showing us how to have this kindness and love toward those who have no claim on that affection for us. Those who really do not give us a sense of delight. They don't give us or induce in us some kind of joy. When we see them, you know, when when this is played out practically and you see somebody who doesn't like you, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is not, oh, how wonderful. Someone said to return evil for good is devilish. To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human, but to return good for evil is divine. That's what Christ is asking us to do. Back in Matthew 5, don't miss this either. The other thing that I need to point out is that we need to be imitators of our Heavenly Father. I think this will probably spill over into next week. Because there's more that needs to be said here. Look at verses 45 through 47. Let's read that once again. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And by the way, that's it was Calvin who initially made the claim and titled those kind of things common grace. It was Calvin, I think, in the first part of his institutions that actually uses the term common grace, and that's where where we get that term. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Rhetorical questions. Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Rhetorical question. Of course they do. Aren't you to be different than that? And we've seen him do these things in these passages here in Matthew 5. He's he's condemning the teaching uh, of the Pharisees at the time. He's correcting their misinterpretations. He then applies that law to human relationships. But understand something. Of the six antitheses that make up this section of the Sermon on the Mount... This is the only passage he does not do that. And so instead of giving specific applications to the way this works out in human relationships, he just says, look, why are we to be motivated to keep these words of his? This is the only place he does that. This is the only place he does not 
tell us how this plays out, but why we should do these things. What motivates us to do this? What's the great motivation? What's the great motivation and desire to be like our Heavenly Father? And I think I want to come back on that topic, maybe press that a little bit more next time. Or at least some point in the future. Let's just keep our focus on on how kind of the law dodging is the hobby of the Pharisees for now. And maybe come back to that because of the practical aspects of this. But think about that. Not just kind of dodging their view of the of the law, but over up against believers, we should have a keen appetite for what? Righteousness. We should be hungering and thirsting for righteousness, which is what he says earlier in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be what? Filled, satisfied. We're to seek the living God. We want to be more like Christ. We want to seek after Him. We want to desire to be like Him. And this is such a beautiful description of what the heart of our Heavenly Father is like. In verse 45, He implies that. Look at verse 45. What is the implication in verse 45? The implication is these Pharisees are saying that love is for some but not for others. That's what he is implying there. You contrast that with your heavenly father. And he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. The son to bring blessing not just to the righteous but to the unrighteous. Not just pouring out his mercies on everyone without distinction, his mercies in that common grace come to all. These common mercies, think about it, these are instances and proofs of God's bountiful and sovereign love, are they not? These are manifestations of our God who gives good gifts from heaven above in which there is no variation, there's no shifting shadow, as James says. On some level, what Jesus is saying here is he is actually showing in common grace a love even towards people who hate him. And even in righteousness. Perfect righteousness. I mean, he does hate the wicked. right? The psalmist says that, right? He's not thwarting that. He's not undermining that teaching. He's just saying, look at how God is good overall. I mean, think about even Paul's words. While we were yet at enmity with him, Christ died for our sins at the right time. And so even in that specific grace, you have the love of a father towards those who, if you're in Christ, at one point you hated him. Oh, I never hated God. Well, if you weren't born again, you were at enmity with him. You were at war with him. That's what Paul teaches in Romans. So the Father's love is a love that reaches to those who hate him, and it pours out his bounty on those at enmity with him. I mean, it's James who even refers to the fact that 
with this tongue, we bless him. And with the creator who created the tongue, people speak blasphemies towards him. You blaspheme God with the tongue that was made by him. So our desire is to show that same kind of love as our Heavenly Father. And I just need to mention that our love doesn't make us kingdom citizens. Your love for your neighbor does not make you a citizen of heaven. And by doing loving deeds, we don't make ourselves children of the living God. It's the other way around. Understand something. That love, or we could say it this way, good works are not the root of salvation. They're the fruit of salvation. Is how we would sum up James chapter 2. So when by the Spirit of God he makes us children, we walk in love because we're in his family. We reflect the nature of that. I mean, just think about for a second. Do you think Jesus going through all Galilee and healing all the multitudes of the various diseases and the demons that were possessing people and all of the other things that were going on? Do you think he was selective? Well, you're, you know, you're not one of mine. I'm not going to heal you. That's the same crowd who chased after him to try to make him a king because they were seeking the blessing rather than the blesser. John Calvin says, and I quote, Christ testifies that this will be the mark of our adoption if we are kind to the bad and the unworthy. Do not think that we are made sons by our kind deeds, but Christ gives proof from the effect of those deeds that the sons of God are precisely those who approach him, ready for this, approach him in their humility and tenderness. So when God takes up residence, and your life is, is a life of God because the work of the Spirit of God has done His work in you, has wrought that work in you. He changes you. He changes your outlook. He enables you to love those who are un- unlovable. He allows you to love those who do not evoke your love naturally. He gives you that ability. He enables us to have a compassion on those. And by the way, humanly speaking, who do not evoke a response of compassion. And of course, the negative side of this is people play on that. There are people who who play on the Christian emotion because they think that they can't say no no matter what they ask. And so, it's no wonder why, if you just look at the next couple of verses, how our Lord makes it so clear that our love has to exceed the love of the world. He, you know, he's talking about tax collectors. And by the way, they're the scourge of Israel. Matthew, the writer of this gospel, was a scourge to Israel. They hated him. They hated him because the Rome, the Roman government set up people of their own nation to extract taxes from them and basically shake them down for extra and extort them so that they could line their pockets. They hated that. They hated them for that. These were, these were people who basically worked for Rome to shake them down in burdensome ways so that they themselves could be enriched. They were hated. 
Not very, not, not a very popular bunch during the day. So he says in verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do you not even the tax collectors do the same? And so our Lord is saying even the tax collectors love who they love. They look out for those who look out for them. You know, and that was basically the, 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 the quid pro quo. You know, scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. But he says, I'm asking you to do more. As a kingdom citizen, you do more. Verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same, even among the pagans. Even among those who don't know. They know, but they don't know. Romans 1, right? They're without excuse, they know. Let alone those who have the law. People who look out for their own, who are their own. And he is saying to kingdom citizens, look, I'm calling you to love more than that. Matthew Henry says this, and I quote, Christianity is is more than humanity. We know more than others, as he's talking about as believers. We know more than others. We talk more the things of God than others. We profess more than others. We have been promised more than others. God has done more for us, and therefore, he justly expects more from us than others. And then Henry says, he calls on us to love the unlovable, end quote. And that's what our Lord is saying. He's saying that, and and, and the reason why is there's a reflection of that in Matthew, or excuse me, yeah, Matthew 5.48, the end of the chapter there, which really is is kind of a, an inclusive verse regarding these Antitheses, but you are to be perfect because your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, God, forgive me. I fall so short of that. What a condemnation of my flesh. And yet he's not saying that you and I can attain perfection in this life. That's not what he's saying. Go go, jump down to verse 612. This is the same words of our Lord who is going to teach us to pray verse 612 and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors same one who tells us to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect you're not going to be able to achieve perfection in this life and by the way if not and if you could he would not have given us this clause in the Lord's prayer which says forgive us our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us or our debtors now he's saying, have the same kind of all-embracing love that your Heavenly Father has. And by the way, Luke gives us a clue. Listen to Luke 6.36. He makes a modification to the word. Matthew's gospel says, be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Luke's gospel in Luke 6.36 says, be merciful as your Heavenly Father is merciful. Merciful. So... This understanding of being perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect manifests itself in how we show mercy to those who hate us. Merciful, it's a verb that means to pity, have compassion on, be compassionate towards. So Matthew uses a different verb, which, again, figuratively applies in a moral sense of people, but... When it's used in a moral sense referring to God's expectation for us, it, it means completely blameless. That's really what the word 
uh, perfect means in Matthew 5.48, blameless, we would see that word used similar in James. And, and let me let me say it a different way, and I think this might help you. Instead of thinking of it in terms of perfection, it is being unspotted from the world. Does that help? Not to be tainted by the world. James says in James 1.4, and let endurance have its perfect results, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, he's not saying that there's a perfection that you're going to be able to operate in in terms of this side of glory because you reside in sinful flesh, but there is a blamelessness that you can say, I'm not following the course of the world. And so in Luke 6, Luke's summation of the Sermon on the Mount, mercy is being contrasted to being uh, a mercenary. God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, is basically calling his people to love those who, first and foremost, are not in a position to reward us for our love. We're not looking for a kickback. And secondly, even to love those who, despite our love, seek to abuse us. It's a love which loves not only because of what We're not looking to get something from others. It's a love that is implanted in our hearts because the work of God in us shows that love and it comes forth because of what he has done in our hearts. It's enabling us to love without anticipation. It enables us to love without expectation of reward for that love. Only from the Heavenly Father, though. It's a love our Lord is calling us to and it's the love of God, my dear friends. It's the love of God. And in fact, if anything, this passage teaches that this is the way, not by works righteousness, it's because that this love is not a love that we can stoke up in ourselves. I don't get, I don't get emotional and crank this thing up on my own. It's a love that only comes to us because God has taken residence in the heart of the, uh, of the individual. Uh, you want to see this, uh, Go to Jonah chapter 4, please. Turn to Jonah chapter 4. If that clock is right, I have an hour and a half to preach. My guess is it's not right. Don't get nervous. What's that? Uh, Jonah 4. I want you to think of God's words to the prophet Jonah. He's obviously a mighty man of God in, in one respect. He had absolutely no compassion on the Ninevites. Zero. I think the young people learned about this recently. He, he wanted basically his people to have a revival, not these people. He didn't want the Gentile nit, uh, uh, people there to have a revival. And so I want you to pick up in verse 10 of Jonah 4. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. And then look what he says in Jonah 4.11. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? Should I not have compassion on the Ninevites, especially the 120,000 who don't know their right hand from their left hand? Who's he speaking of there? I think as Raquel has termed it, the littles. The littles. Right? And by the way, these are pagans. Not only that, not just the littles, 
Not just those who do not know their left hand from the right. Could even include uh, mentally handicapped people as well. But he says, how, what about the animals? Not just compassion on the people, but the animals. And you see in that how God the Father has a compassion, not just on those who don't know their right hand from their left. He wants them to come and enjoy the grace which is held in store for those who embrace him by faith in electing love. I mean, it's easy to love those who we delight in. Man, I got that down. It's difficult, humanly impossible, to love those who not only are different from us, but those who use us and those who abuse us, those who seek to take advantage of us, to trample our rights, to kick sand in our face. John Stott said, and this hits me right between the eyes, John Stott said, everybody believes in love, but not love for those who have injured us. Everyone believes in love, but not those who have injured us. And you see, my friends, if you want to measure whether you've gone beyond niceness or politeness to real Christian love, you have to look at your heart and you have to ask some questions. How do I love those who have hurt me? How do I love those who hate me? How do I love those who have no claim on my love? And then and only then can you see really kind of the extent and how far We have to go in love. And thank God that our Lord Jesus Christ doesn't leave us to our own devices. I am so thankful that the Lord does not leave me to my own devices. I am so thankful for that. This is a love that is not created by human emotion and human effort. I need to constantly run back to him. And I can only run back to him and Seek him and his word to give more love, not just to Christ, but to even grow in a kind of this love for one another and neighborly love. And you need to realize there is no humanly generated love that will give you or me the ability to do this, especially in a self-sacrificial way, because isn't that what agape love is? Isn't that what true biblical love is? It's a love that that unbelievers don't possess. Agape love is only a manifestation of the Spirit of God. Right? And so you only can do this by having a living, loving relationship with the Heavenly Father. You can only have this assurance that's given to us from Him of everything we need in Christ. An assurance that... All blessing awaits us in glory. If we are to look for any kind of blessing or reward, that's it. And that's precisely what he's calling us to. That's precisely what he's calling me to. Who can do these things? Who can possibly do these things? And how can we, of all people, live up to them? When I say we, I'm talking about Those whom the Lord Jesus Christ himself said, if you then being evil, only the liberating power of the Spirit of God can enable us to live up to this. And I don't know about you, I'm thankful for Paul's words, and I'll close with this. Because one of the greatest things in Scripture is the realization that God, the Spirit of God, has brought us to himself in sovereign grace when I hated him. 
yet he continues to work in a sanctifying way his ministry of the Spirit of God in my life. I'm thankful for the words of Paul in Philippians 1.6. And he said, I'm very confident of this fact, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Praise God for that. And it's only through him that we can even possibly measure up to these grace statements our Lord made. Well, keep in mind as we close that we're not left to climb this mountain alone. I mean, the promise at the end of Matthew, I will never leave you or forsake you. That should resonate in our hearts and our minds. It's a great thing to be a kingdom citizen. It's a great thing to have the enabling power of the Spirit of God. And for that, may we be grateful. Father, we thank and praise you for your word this morning. Thank you so much, Father, for the blessedness that you have granted to us. Lord, inscribe these truths deeply in our souls and on our hearts. But as people of God, Father, we would glorify and honor you in all we do and say. Be with us in a special way, Father, even as we leave this place, as we go into this sin-stained world, this dark and ever-growing dark world, that we would let our light shine before men in such a way as they would see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. That is seemingly getting harder and harder, yet we aren't to shrink from that responsibility. Lord, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Help us, please. And help those even listening or here that are apart from you in their sin and transgressions. Oh, God, please give them the grace to recognize your holiness. Draw them unto yourself and by your grace and mercy deliver them. Let today be the day of salvation. For your name's sake we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.